If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at verses, Matthew 13, 53 to Matthew 14 and verse 12 this morning. So we're going to look at a, a bigger section than we, we often do, or at least that, that we have in a long while. <clears throat> Let's begin by reading our text, Matthew 13, starting in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and because his, because, and, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there, in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Well, this is a sad section. Uh, I called this message the res, uh, the, uh, what did I call this message? I called this message rejected at Nazareth and the execution of the forerunner. Luke 1 15 to 17 speaks of John the Baptist as, as the one who's going to go before Jesus to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Matthew explains John this way. This is Matthew 3 and verse 3. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And that's from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And so John was Jesus's way maker. He was the one who would go before him. He was the one who would make His path straight. Make the path of the Lord straight. And so what we have here is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen to Jesus. If the path of the forerunner ends in execution, then those who follow that path are likely going to end up in the same place. And so we're coming now into a, a section of Matthew that focuses on the mixed response 
to Jesus. And we're going to see rejection and we're going to see opposition with some examples kind of mixed in there of, of individuals having faith and accepting Christ. And this section is also interspersed with a few miracles as well. Now, I, I typically think of this section as Matthew 14 to 17, um, really Matthew 14 to the end of 17, but actually it's, it starts in Matthew 13, 53. And maybe that's a reminder then for us that the chapter divisions aren't inspired by God. They were, they were added later and sometimes the, those divisions were added somewhat imperfectly. I, I would say it should, really should have been chapter 14 starting right in uh, verse 53 when Jesus had finished these parables, which is kind of Matthew's cue that he's entering into a new section when Jesus had finished whatever it was he was doing, the Sermon on the Mount or whatever. So Matthew has shown us who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is the, he is, um, the God-man, if we could say it that way, who came to save his people from their sins. He came to offer the kingdom to Israel, but he was rejected. And we're going to see increasingly after this point that he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to start kind of revealing the, the future and what's going to happen to him to his disciples. Now, I think Matthew largely gave us these verses for information. He wants us to know that Jesus was rejected at home. He wants us to know what happened to John the Baptist. He doesn't want to leave that kind of uh, a mystery to us. He wants to let us know, but he also wants to kind of foreshadow that Jesus himself is going to go to the cross and die. And so we could maybe think of these as examples of what Jesus taught us in the parable of the sower. We're going to see some people respond to the gospel and and bear fruit and follow Christ. We're going to see some people, as we get into this section, we're going to see some people reject him and Satan's going to snatch the word from their hearts and uh, they're not going to believe the gospel. And so we see here that Jesus, the Messiah, was rejected and that John, the forerunner, was executed. And from a human side, from the human maybe perspective, if we can say it that way, these would be difficult days in the life of our Lord. You know, rejection is never easy, and I'm sure it would hurt even more when it was his own family and his own hometown that was rejecting him. He, these are the people that he grew up with. These are the people that knew him best. But from the divine side, from God's perspective, God is accomplishing his purposes and his plans to save his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for ourselves, I think we can draw from these passages that, that sometimes the world will reject us and our message is going to end even as they rejected uh, our, our, our message is going to end. Um, that doesn't even make sense, does it? Um, trying to see what my notes actually say here from the for ourselves i think how do how we apply this is that we're going to recognize that sometimes the world is going to reject us and our message even as they rejected jesus and if jesus was rejected in his hometown and even in his own family then why should we expect anything different for ourselves Sometimes God is going to overcome unbelief and, and supernaturally save people and open their eyes and soften their hearts, but sometimes not many mighty things will happen because of unbelief, just like we have in Jesus' ministry. 
And it could even be for some of us that one day, the future, we don't know it, but it could be that some of us will even be executed like John. But whatever the case, God is going to accomplish His purposes in our lives. We don't always understand God's providence. We don't always understand what He's doing in our lives. But we can learn to trust God with whatever He allows. And so we're going to look at this text under really just two headings in the two sections, the two passages. First of all, Jesus rejected at Nazareth in Matthew thirteen fifty-three to 58. Verse 53 says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And again, verse 53 ends the way that, that every discourse ends. It kind of brings it to a close and opens the new section. Jesus went away from Galilee and the Galilee area. He had been teaching by the lake. We remember his parables were taught from a boat on the lake, and then later he went into the house. That was a house in Galilee, maybe even Peter's house. But now he is he's going away from there. He went away from there, and he comes to his own hometown. Now, Jesus had been in Galilee really from the beginning of his ministry, and if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, and if you look at verse maybe 13, It says there, Matthew four thirteen, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And if you jump down to verse 18, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. And that's where he calls James and John and Andrew and Peter uh, to follow him. In verse 23 of Matthew 4, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then if we kind of jump past the Sermon on the Mount and we go to Matthew chapter 9, if you look at verse 1 there, it says, and getting into a boat, he crossed over. And, and where he's going here is he's, he's going from the area of the Gadarenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side. And he's coming to his own city there. And uh, his own city is Capernaum. And so Jesus has really been around the Sea of Galilee, especially kind of centered in the, the village of Capernaum. And uh, and now, finally, the Lord is going to go back to his hometown. He's going to go back to Nazareth. Now, the parallel passage in, in Luke confirms this. Both Luke and Mark go into quite a bit more detail about this whole event and, and tell us more about the situation there in Nazareth. Luke even tells us that Jesus taught in the synagogue there. And that afterward, the, the people were so filled with wrath that he claimed to be the Messiah... And, uh, and actually, let's just go over there and look at that. Look at Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> Luke 4, uh, starting in verse 28. When they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the ta- out of town ta- out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
but passing through their midst, he went his way. Now, just before that, in, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so Jesus went to Nazareth, taught in the synagogue. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. He said that the, the, the reading from Isaiah had been fulfilled in their hearing, verse 21. And uh, the people marveled, verse 22, at the words that were coming out of his mouth. And uh, they were then filled with wrath and tried to kill the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the last mention that we're going to have in, in Matthew's gospel. And I, I think in any of the gospels, chronologically anyways, this is the last time that Jesus is going to teach in the synagogue. It's the last mention of, of this. And, and from now on, our Lord is going to be really outside and on the outskirts of official Judaism. And so he's kind of been rejected by the official leaders. And now he's kind of preaching on his own outside of official Judaism. They don't let him teach in the synagogues anymore. Now, if you're back in Matthew, look at verse 54. Jesus taught so that they were astonished at his teaching. And so they were amazed that the word astonished there was used of the crowds when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. They were astonished at his teaching. And we'll see the same thing in Matthew 22 and verse 33 there. Jesus proves the resurrection to the Sadducees. And it says there, Matthew 22, 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And the word means amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. It's really a, a very strong word. And so the, the, the town of Nazareth was astonished, and they said in verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And so they heard his wisdom and his teaching, and his mighty works would have mostly, they, they would have mostly just heard about them because Jesus didn't do many mighty works there, but perhaps they saw a few things. Remember the, the whole area had heard about Jesus. Again, Matthew 4, 23, he went through all Galilee. This is kind of the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And so Jesus' fame was, was very well known, but the, the people in Nazareth heard his wisdom and they, they at least heard about his mighty works and they were astonished. Now, Nazareth is quite a bit south of Capernaum, but it's still in Galilee. And so they would have heard about these miracles. But apparently, again, Jesus didn't do many mighty miracles there, many mighty works because of their unbelief. Mark actually puts it this way, Mark 6, 5. He says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But even these few healings astonished the people and and these are, again, the people that Jesus grew up with. And they said, verse 54, where did this man get these, this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so they wonder about the source of his gifts. Where did, where did they come from? Where did these things come from? Now the Pharisees had earlier said that they came from Satan. And you'll remember that in Matthew chapter 12. The Nazarenes, they don't answer their own question, but it seems clear that they decide that, that Jesus didn't get his wisdom and his mighty works from God. Otherwise, they would have believed him and accepted him and not tried to kill him. And so all they can see is, is that Jesus is one of them. He's a, the son of Joseph, the carpenter or the, the builder. They know his mother, Mary. They know the family, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. They, and, and we know James and Jude from, as, as the authors of the New Testament books that bear their names. But at this time, these brothers don't believe him. None of his brothers are noteworthy. None of his brothers are known. And, and they really aren't even believers at this point. Now, Jesus' sisters, they're unnamed, but the text says that they are, are with us. Likely the, the brothers moved away, but his, his sisters married local men and they're still living in Nazareth. And of course, to the locals, Jesus was the son of Joseph. But to the reader of Matthew, we know that Jesus was born of Mary before her and Joseph came together. And so these brothers and sisters are the children of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. We often speak about them as the half-brothers of Jesus, so the, the half-sisters of Jesus. Joseph acted as Jesus' father, but in reality, Jesus didn't have an earthly human father. He was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the village, they just knew Jesus and his family and and. And they didn't, they didn't, they knew that he didn't get his wisdom and his power from the local community, right? They, they recognized that, that this isn't, this isn't from us, you know, that Jesus is, this, this power, this, this wisdom that he has is something different than, than what we have. And they didn't want to accept that. Again, in verse 56, where did this man get all these things? And it's literally here, where then did this get all these? And, and this might be somewhat of an insult. Where did this get the, it's kind of a this and it's, it's in the masculine. And so the, the translators bring out this man, but it's, it's kind of a, a rude way to, uh, to speak about another person. This. Now verse 57 gives us the result of all this questioning and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Offense is the word scandalizo. And I, I think we've spoken about this word a few times. Scandalizo comes from scandalon. A, a scandalon was a, a live trap for catching birds or other animals. It's, you can kind of think about it kind of like our live traps today. There's some bait in there and there's this trap. And when the animal goes in and knocks over a stick or something, the cage falls on the animal. And so now you've got yourself a live bird or a live animal. That's a scandalon. And it was used metaphorically of an action or of a situation that, that led one off of the proper course. And so when you're, when you're going along the path and, and you end up in a trap, obviously you're, you've kind of gotten off course, right? You were, you were supposed to be kind of continuing on the path. Now you're in this trap. You've gone 
off course. And so a scandalon, this this trap was used metaphorically to speak about temptation to sin or enticement to sin. And so you think of the, the bait and the trap, drawing one of the one trapped away from the proper path. Now the word was also used of someone or something who causes offense or causes revulsion. And I guess if, if you were kind of walking on the path and you saw this trap there and you knew that it was, it was intended to trap you and catch you and, and do harm to you, you would be offended. You would recognize that an enemy had, had put that trap there and so the trap's an offense to you. It causes hostility. It causes opposition. And, and so that's the, this word scandalon. Now, scandalizo is the, is the verb form, and, and it's really the same word, and it, it means to be trapped, or to be led off the proper course, or to be led into sin, or, or some other downfall, or as it means here, to be offended, to, to recognize the hostility, and, and that's what's happening here with, with Jesus. These people are offended, they're repelled, they're repulsed at Jesus, in such a way that they don't believe him and, and thus they have sinned. Now Jesus had said previously using that same word to John the Baptist, he said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And again, it's the same word here. Blessed is the one who is not offended. And so you are blessed if you believe Jesus Christ, if you believe he's the Messiah, if you believe he's the Son of God, if you believe he's the Savior of your soul, you are blessed. But the opposite is also true. If you refuse to believe or refuse to follow him or take offense at him and his claim as, as Lord of the universe, Lord of your life, then you will be, you will keep from the blessing of knowing God and you will be kept from the blessing of eternal life. The blessing of God is only found through His Son, Jesus Christ. And outside of Christ, there is no blessing. See, Jesus is the only way to the Father. But Nazareth was offended at Jesus. They were offended at His claims. They refused God's only Son. And according to Luke's Gospel, again, they even tried to kill Him by throwing Him off a cliff. And so they took offense at Him But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now we should notice here, I think, that Jesus refers to himself as a prophet. Uh, Besides John, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel since the days of Malachi, about 400 years before. But also Jesus acknowledges that that he is without honor. He has been dishonored by the Nazarenes. And the place where a a prophet is typically without honor, according to Jesus, is in his own hometown and in his own household. Outside of those places, he he does have honor. But what I think we should see here is that Jesus is pointing to is that, that his household, his family are among those who are also offended. And I think that that's what Jesus is getting at when he said, except in his hometown and in his own household. Even Jesus' own family, not even his, not just his hometown, but the family themselves were offended at him. And we saw a hint of this already before the section of parables. If you could just go back to Matthew 12, look at verse 46. 
says there, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus was rejected by his own family. At least at this point, he was. Now, perhaps we could leave Mary out of this. We're not exactly sure. Matthew's not explicit about this, but, but most believe that Joseph was already dead at this time. John chapter 7 and verse 5 tells us explicitly that it says there that for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so Jesus' brothers, at least for a time, again, we know that, that James was, was later the, the elder in the church of Jerusalem and wrote the, the letter that is uh, um, titled after him. Judas as well, which, which we know, who we know as Jude, uh, also became a follower of Christ. We're not so sure about, um, about Simon and, and the other brother there. But uh, John 7, 5, again, his, even his brothers did not believe in him, at least at this point in his life. Now, perhaps for us, there could be some comfort for us to know that, that Jesus himself knows what it's like to be rejected by his hometown and by his family. And I think some of us have been maybe experiencing that in some ways. We've been rejected by our hometown. We've been rejected even in some cases by our own family for following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can take comfort that Jesus himself has also walked this path. He called us to put following him above our families, above our communities. We're to do the the will of his father above the will of our human families. And if we lose our earthly families for Jesus' sake because of our obedience to him, or because they are somehow offended by Christ or by our commitment to Christ, then we can be encouraged that our Lord paved the way for us, that he knows the pain of it, and he promises to be our family and to give us a new family in each other in the church. Again, in Matthew 12 and verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Or consider another passage along this line. Look at Matthew chapter 19 and look at verse, starting at verse 27. Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so we have this promise from the Lord that that we will receive a hundredfold as well as eternal life if we continue to follow him and lose things for his sake. If we go back to our text again, look at verse 57. They took offense at him, 
But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Again, Mark actually says that he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, as we kind of think about what's happening there, I I think that we shouldn't think of this in the sense that Jesus didn't have the ability to do miracles, as though somehow unbelief hindered his power. Even Mark says that he did heal a few sick people, but Jesus often healed people in the Gospel of Matthew. We've often seen that he healed people without them having faith, where there's no mention of their faith. But faith is really what what made people come to Jesus for healing, right? They believed that he had the power to heal and then they would, they would come to him for healing. And so what we have here in Nazareth is a hostile setting and they, they really run him out of town shortly after his, his visit in the synagogue, shortly after his preaching. He always has the ability to heal, but, but here he lacked what I would think of as the external factors. He lacked the opportunity to heal except those few healings. In fact, if you just think about it normally, the the sick people aren't going to be in the synagogue that day. They're going to be kind of in their houses, sick in their beds, and uh, nobody's bringing people to Jesus because of their unbelief. Jesus always has the power to heal, but he didn't heal. He didn't do much there. Healed a few sick people, but it was, again, because of their unbelief. I think because they wouldn't bring people to him. And so let's close this section with this. Unbelief results in offense and dishonor for Jesus. Unbelief results in offense towards him and, and dishonor to him, whereas belief produces honor. When we believe Jesus, we go to him, not for miracles or healing, at least not today, but, but we go to him for, for what he has revealed that he will do today in his word. And so belief goes to Jesus for help in everything in life. Belief takes Jesus as our rock, takes him as our refuge. Belief goes to him in prayer in every situation of life. Belief trusts him to change us and make us holy. Belief clings to him and honors him and worships him as Lord. Belief goes to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, goes to him for righteousness, goes to him for cleansing, goes to him for sanctification, Again, goes to him for every need in life. But Jesus will not do many mighty works where sinful unbelief keeps people from coming to him for those reasons. And so we should be a people that believe, a people that honor the Lord. But our Lord Jesus was rejected in his hometown at Nazareth. Now let's look at number two, John executed At, and I, I'm not really sure how to pronounce, pronounce this, Macarius. Uh, that's probably not how I, Macarius. Uh, I want to add a little vowel in there somehow, but Macarius, um, this place, it doesn't appear in the biblical text, Macarius, but this is where Herod's prison was. This is where the, his palace was located. This is where his birthday party was on this day that Ma- Matthew speaks about. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, and we're, of course, in Matthew 14 here, verse 1, verse 2, Herod the Tetrarch, 
He was also known as Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great, and Herod the Great was the the ruler who killed all the male children in Bethlehem when he heard that the Messiah was born there. And so Herod Antipas is the, the son of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Now, Herod Antipas was tetrarch over Perea and Galilee. <clears throat> there were other tetrarchs. Um, I don't know that we need to talk about it too much. Tetrarch means kind of like a, a fourth ruler, a ruler of a fourth of the kingdom, but it just came to be used for any kind of a ruler. And, and actually, when Herod the Great died, he broke his kingdom into three parts, but they still kept the title tetrarch. And so he broke his, his kingdom into three parts. There was Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, there was Philip the Tetrarch, also son of Herod the Great, and uh, there was another one whose name I didn't write down in, in my notes right now, but um, our Philip is not Philip the Tetrarch, but our Philip is still Herod Antipas's brother, okay, are you guys with me? And guess what they called him? They called him Herod. It's like every one of these guys is called Herod for some reason. But anyways, there's there's Herod Philip. And Herod Philip married Herodias, which is funny. And she's also like part of the family. And I didn't even want to find out how closely related they were. And it's kind of complicated. But Herod Philip married Herodias. And Herod Antipas went and visited his brother Herod Philip and... Herodias, and he fell in love, in, you know, this is the, this is what the dictionary says, he fell in love with Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife. Now, to make it even stranger, Herodias is also Herod Antipas's niece. And this is like, for me, I was, I'm lost already. It's like when you guys try to tell me about how you're related to each other, I, I just like, I don't, I lost, you lost me at Nice or something, you know, like, but anyways, this is the situation here. Herod Antipas divorced his wife and Herodias divorced her husband, Philip, and those two were married in 27 AD. Now, John the Baptist strongly rebuked Herod Antipas about this unlawful marriage. Again, look at our text, verse one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, let's just stop there. Herod Antipas is kind of superstitious about the fact that he killed John. And we're going to hear about that in verses 3 and following. But he's kind of superstitious and he hears Jesus doing miracles. And he somehow concludes that John the Baptist was raised from the dead. And now he's doing even more powerful works than he was doing before. But verse 3 kind of explains the, the superstition of Herod, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now in verse 4 where it says John had been saying, there's this continual sense here, there's this continuous rebuke coming from John the Baptist to Herod that it is not lawful for you to have her. And so John was continuously preaching this message about Herod's unlawful marriage. Now Leviticus 18 verse 16 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. 
And Leviticus 20.21 says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be child, childless. And so it was unlawful for a man to marry his brother's wife. And that's what John the Baptist would have been kind of emphasizing when he, when he called Herod to repent. Remember, that was John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that message even went to the leaders of the land. Now, the only time that you could legally marry your brother's wife is if your brother died. And especially if your brother died childless, you could, you could marry his wife to carry on your brother's name. And that was the idea of this kinsman redeemer, like we see in the book of, of uh, Ruth, Ruth and Boaz. The Boaz was Ruth's kind of more distant kinsman redeemer. But in this case, Herod Philip was still alive. And so we have most likely an unbiblical divorce and we have a remarriage that was contrary to the law, what God had called impurity. And John called out this sin. He called out the sin of his nation's political leaders. And not just once, but he was continually doing that. He wasn't, he was just, he wasn't letting this thing go. And so Herodias formed a grudge and Herod had him arrested. And he wanted to kill him, verse five. But he, he also didn't want to at the same time because he feared the people. They thought that John was a prophet. And so he had John arrested. Verse three, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Uh, again, Mark gives us more detail. Mark, this is Mark 16. This is Mark 6, 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And Herodias got her chance at Herod's birthday party. Herodias' daughter performed for Herod. Herodias' daughter was the daughter from her first marriage with Philip, and her name was Salome. And at that time, she would have been, we, th- we think, about 13 or 14 years old. And so Matthew 14 and verse 6, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, we don't know what kind of a dance this was. The, the scripture is very discreet here. But for whatever reason, Herod was pleased and he offered Salome a reward and he even made an oath. Uh, again, Mark 6 adds more detail. Mark 6.24 says, and she went out and, and, and said to her mother, so the, you know, I'll give you whatever you might ask. And, and he makes an oath about it in front of all of his guests. And the daughter of this 13, 14-year-old girl, Salome, doesn't know what to do. And so she goes to her mother and she says to her mother, what should I ask for? For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And so she asked her mother what to ask for. And Herodias knew this is her chance. What a, what a wicked request this is. You know, she must have had quite the grudge that she thinks about this. Uh, again, our text, Matthew 14, verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a, on a platter. Now, what kind of a 14-year-old girl asks for something like this as a reward? And I, I think it really shows us just the depravity, human depravity. 
And, and really, if you think about our culture today, it's really, it's really no different. I think if, if our culture was offended at us, I think that they would, they would gladly do this if they had the opportunity. They would, they would have our head on a platter as well. But thankfully, there's still some remaining, uh, restraining force in the world. God is, is, uh, pleased to allow some level of righteousness, maybe only a smidgen of righteousness in our society today. But John, in that day, the Herod could kind of do whatever he wanted, and so there's this request. John would have been in prison just right underneath at the lower levels of the palace while this party happened above. And if you think about John on this day, he didn't know this was coming. There was no trial, there was, there's no, no righteousness happening, there's, there's just no word about this thing. I don't even know if he would have been aware of the party going upstairs. But even if there was a party going on upstairs, he would have had no idea that this was coming on this day. Now think about John for a minute. He was uh, quite the man. He was proclaimed by angels. His birth was. He lived in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, according to Luke 1.80. He ate locusts and honey in the wilderness. He preached in the wilderness. He called Israel to repent and believe in Jesus. And great crowds came to, to hear him, even to hear him gladly as Herod did. But if we think about it, the, the nation largely didn't repent and they largely didn't follow Jesus Christ. You know, I think sometimes we think about John's ministry as this great success, but, but really humanly speaking, what did John accomplish? What, what was his legacy? Jesus had said about him in Matthew 11, this is Matthew 11, 9 to 11, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so John was A prophet, he was more than a prophet, whatever that is. He was the messianic forerunner. But still his ministry from a human perspective would have looked like somewhat like a failure. At first many people seemed to repent and indeed they, they did repent through his early ministry, but he told them to follow the one who came after him. He told them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing now is that there's very few at this point following Christ. There's very few who have followed through with John's message. Now we know that after Jesus is going to rise from the dead, many are going to be saved and many of them are are likely people who had been influenced by John the Baptist. But John doesn't know the plan. He doesn't, he doesn't know the future and he's sitting in jail with a, a handful of disciples who are kind of bringing messages between him and Christ. And he's doing his best to trust God in the situation, but he's even at times doubting if Jesus is is the one to come. Now we can look back and we can see God's plan and we can recognize that God glorified himself through John the Baptist, but but we we have the advantage of hindsight. And I think the same thing works for whatever we're going through. If we want to kind of apply this to ourselves, we need to trust God to glorify himself through us and, and leave the plan to him. Right? Often God will, will make us look like not much is happening and then he'll do great things even after we pass away. And so we just need to trust God with his plan, whatever he's, whatever he's working out in our lives. 
God will create a legacy if he wants to. Our role is just simply to be faithful and and trust that God will be glorified as we serve him with our lives. But here's this more than a prophet sitting in prison. Again, might not have even known about the party above, but all of a sudden the executioner would have come to his cell to take off his head. Again, in verse 9, the king was sorry. This is Matthew 14, verse 9. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And that was the end of John the Baptist, at least until the resurrection. John's soul or his spirit would have went to God who made it. And even now he awaits the return of Christ. He awaits his bodily resurrection. But on earth, John's disciples, they went and they told Jesus who would have known that his own ministry was going to end in being put to death by sinners as well. Now Jesus as a man would have would have grieved God's death, maybe even as God, he even would have grieved at this point his own death, knowing that what happened to John was also going to happen to him. He would have grieved the sinful world that hates and kills holy men like John. And verse 13 tells us, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And so Jesus tried to withdraw to be by himself. And, and really, as he always did when he withdrew, he was, he was going to, to spend time alone with his father. But the crowds followed him, and so he's going to minister to the crowds in the midst of this grief. And we're going to look at that next time. Now, I've been thinking about this passage or these passages all week, kind of asking this question. Why did Matthew want us to know about this? Why would Matthew tell us these stories about Jesus being rejected at Nazareth and, and John being killed at Macarius? What does Matthew want his readers to apply to their lives? And again, I think these passages are, passages are primarily about information. They just tell us what happened to Jesus and what happened to John, but, but these ones are chosen because they pave the way for Jesus' arrest, for his mock trial, for his beatings, and, and ultimately they, they pave the way to the, the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to die in many ways just like John. Now Jesus is not merely a prophet, and he's not even more than a prophet. He's more than more than a prophet. Jesus is God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. His death is, is much more than the death of a martyr. John was, was the death of a martyr, but Jesus' death is even more because Jesus' death is for us. And He's gonna die, and He did die as our representative. Jesus didn't just die on the cross because He was rejected. He died on a cross because it was God's plan to save us from our sins. Jesus didn't just die on a cross. He bore God's wrath on that cross to pay the penalty for our sins, something that John could never have done. Jesus died as a sacrificial lamb to make atonement for us. 
The innocent Son of God died on that so that guilty sinners like you and I could be forgiven of our sins and made righteous in God's sight. And Matthew is leading us to the cross now so that we can see our salvation accomplished. Now this upcoming week is Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to spend time thinking specifically on Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus made the way the only way for sinful men and women, which we all are. He made a way, the only way for us to be made righteous in the eyes of the holy God who created us in order to be saved and forgiven and to enjoy all the blessings of salvation, to be made righteous and cleansed. You must repent of all of your sins. You must turn from your sins. You must make a 180 degree turn away from sin and to God. You must repent in order to be saved. And you must believe. Believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. Believe that his death was for sin. Believe that he accomplished perfect righteousness, which he can give to everyone who trusts in him. Believe that what he says is true, that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. And if you trust him, he will save you from your sins. He will apply his righteousness to you. He will clothe you in the pure white garments of his holiness and present you faultless before his father's throne. And so if you don't know this salvation, I would invite you to come to Jesus today. I would invite you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins today if you would only turn and believe, if you would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not saved, I invite you to come to Christ. And if you're here today and you you do know this salvation, that I would just invite you to rejoice in your salvation. Remember what God has accomplished for you. Remember that, that Jesus was rejected in his hometown, that he was rejected by even his family, that John paved the way for him, but remember that it all leads up in God's perfect plan to your and my salvation for God's glory. And so I invite you today to, to worship God for this salvation, for this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to sing here, in a moment, we're going to sing the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And the reason that it's sinking sand is because there is no salvation apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you again this morning for your plan of salvation. We thank you just for, for all you accomplished, all you allowed to happen in the life of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that you led him to the cross to be our representative, to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins, to, to give us righteousness that we could never have on our own. We thank you for cleansing us of our sin, forgiving us in him, and, and really for all that you have blessed us with in this salvation through Christ. We pray for those who don't know you, uh, who, who haven't come to Christ. We ask that you would save them, Father. And we thank you for Christ, the solid rock, the, the ground that we can stand on, that we can have assurance because of him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.